Michael Schumann, um, and I am the author of several books on local economic development, uh, the most recent of which is called Local Dollars, Local Sense. I am an attorney, a, an economist, and uh, um, I, formally my title now is a Director of Community Portals for Mission Markets. Uh, that's a group that I work for part-time. A lot of your work, uh, and increasingly uh, a lot of what we do at Transition Network, is about trying to model and communicate and show in practice how uh, uh, localization is a form of economic development, is a, is, is a valid form of economic development, as valid if not more valid alongside the, the current um, approach. How, where, where, where are we at, do you think, in that pursuit of being able to model and argue and present the case that localization, more resilient local economies, is a form of economic development? I mostly follow evidence inside the United States, uh, and, and from that, I would say that we are winning. Uh, there's just been study after study that has come out uh, showing that uh, localization uh, is good for job growth and good for per capita income growth and good for reducing poverty and good for environmental uh, uh, restoration, um, good for resilience. Uh, it really, the only, I mean, it, it is much easier, I think, to identify uh, the holes, it, the small number of holes that remain uh, in the localization argument than, than the weaknesses and the, than, than the, um, than to talk about the, uh, uh, all the good things that are happening. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, so there was a nice study that, uh, came out in the federal from the federal reserve of Atlanta last August, uh, that looked at, uh, hundreds of counties <clears throat> across the United States um, performed a very empirically rigorous um, uh, regression analysis and found that, that those counties with the highest density of local and small business were those that actually had the highest level of per capita income growth. Um, and, and we're doing the best job of reducing poverty, um, which is quite an extraordinary finding. And, and I think that, that it's extraordinary because there's also a whole bunch of data, historic, that says that the wages paid by smaller businesses are lower, uh, a little bit lower than those of larger businesses. And it really, I, I, so I think the question of causality, the question of how these two facts ought to be related to one another is an interesting one. Um, and, you know, uh, so among the things that I think about are, well, at, at the end of the day, even with even with somewhat lower wages, local businesses spending more money locally, 
are generating higher economic multipliers that generate, you know, more healthy public sectors that come back to people in other ways. That's that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is that uh, the the wages, the wage gap, uh, may in fact be narrowing. Um, so and and and. There is some evidence of this, although I would like to look at the data um, again. Uh, the last time I looked at this data was maybe five, six years ago. But uh, but generally speaking, larger businesses paid more because specifically because unionized manufacturing plants uh, had significantly higher wages uh, for the average worker. And, you know, most of those plants have moved overseas. And instead, what, what has, you know, taken their place in a lot of U.S. cities is Walmarts and, and, and sort of large-scale retail, which pays very, very low wages. So I, th I think that's contributing to the shrinkage of the gap. But, but probably the most important thing, and this is where I think the research that we do is going to be very important, is that we've got to start a segment about where wages are better or worse. And I think one of the things that we will soon find is that businesses that take on a set of social, socially responsible standards um, – that are mindful about environment and mindful about labor actually do wind up paying better wages than the typical small business. And so, you know, t in my mind, what that means is that localization part of a part of a reasonable localization agenda must be to educate smaller, newer businesses about the importance of embracing these high labor and environmental standards um, in, in in their day to day operations. And um, if one of the key drivers of of climate change is could be argued to be economic growth and the constant sort of uh, consumption patterns that it that it requires, what's the uh, what's your sense of how? A more localized economy can avoid that if we replace access. If if we buy our beer from a local uh, a local brewery rather than uh, rather than uh, Budweiser, we're still buying we're still buying beer. That same kind of consumption is still happening. Do we need to? It does localization have built in a strategy about reducing consumption, or is it just about replacing the consumption that we already do to more local producers? Well, I think it's partially what you're saying. It's partially the substitution of, you know, local goods and services with, with from non-local goods and services. But I think also that the complexion of those goods and services will change. So I think one generalization that you can make about smaller versus larger businesses is that uh, smaller businesses tend to be more labor intensive and larger businesses tend these days at least to be more capital intensive. So, uh, you know, the replacement of labor for capital is 
generally going to be a good thing, good for employment, I think. And some of the capital uh, that is required are things that are non-renewable and, and difficult to sustain. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, um, the key for sustainability is not going to be to freeze or lower growth, gross domestic product or whatever measure, better measure we seek to deploy. Um, I think it's going to be to, from a public policy standpoint, put enough taxation on uh, non-renewable energy and material use uh, so that we do move toward, um, you know, sort of lower ecological footprint goods and services. Uh, and, I, you know, in some countries, some places have already begun to do that, and I think it's, it's a positive thing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was always uh, very taken by Herman Daly's argument that, you know, we still can have growth in the economy in non-material, non-energy oriented things, aesthetics, technology, um, people experiencing more services that are of higher quality. And, and indeed, you know, that's one of the trends that one sees among all industrialized economies that generally speaking, um, we have moved from goods economies into service economies. Um, in the United States, uh, when I was a kid in the madman 1960s, about two-thirds of what a typical household spent its money on was on goods and the rest was services. Now that's flipped. Um, it's about two-thirds on services. And I think that number will steadily grow. Um, most of those services are not, uh, do not have a high energy, material, or environmental footprint. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, uh, this, this, e even though people sometimes lament, well, the service economy pays less, um, it's only because sometimes we're not as demanding about our services as we ought to be. A lot of services are, you know, say in healthcare or higher education actually require a lot of training, a lot of intelligence, and, and I think those are the services of the future that will be environmentally benign and uh, at, the, at the same time, grow the economy in non-material ways. And where do you stand on, on the debates about what's possible in terms of the political change that can be leveraged from the local scale? So some people say climate change, peak oil, these are huge global issues. They can only be solved through concerted international political effort anything you do at the local scale is kind of irrelevant and not really making any kind of a difference. What, what meaningful change can, can local communities leverage, do you think? I, think? I think local communities can have a huge impact. And, uh, and I say this not to disparage or, or, or discount the importance of other approaches that are national or, or purely global. Um, but I think there is a very uh, strong case to be made for local action on global problems. So for the first 
10 years or so of my uh, professional life after I was graduated from law school, uh, I ran a, a, an organization called the Center for Innovative Diplomacy. And we had several thousand mayors and council members, um, primarily in the United States, that we were educating about about um, the 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 impacts of so-called municipal foreign policy and um, how and why it, it, it ought to be done. Um, one of the first things that we did was we we held a um, conference called SPA, the Stratospheric Protection Accord, and I believe it was in 1996, I may have to double check that date, um, but we brought together about uh, two dozen American and Canadian cities that basically uh, have the chutzpah to put together uh, a treaty on ozone depletion issues. And the treaty um, outlined certain goals that the mayors involved in this treaty would implement in their own communities with respect to the emission of halons and chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. Um, that treaty, I believe, was a rough draft of the Montreal Protocol um, because that treaty led to a lot of other cities beginning to take initiatives on CFCs. Uh, it translated into profound political impact in the United States because there was a debate um, early on about federal standards with respect to CFCs and some of the uh, national environmental community was prepared to basically sell out local initiatives by having federal standards that were in, in, in the locals view weak preempt, that is, over, override uh, local standards. Um, there was a huge political fight, and because of the clout of the mayors, uh, that, that compromise failed. Um, and instead, you know, uh, states and localities were allowed to uh, take on tougher standards, and then Montreal um, ultimately took place under the Bush Bush one administration and 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 I think you know it, it has been well while not a perfect accord a pretty good accord on that issue so in my mind you know without local action this never would have happened and I feel like you know we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of local action now on carbon reduction um, in some ways, it's a tougher issue uh, than uh, the, the the ozone depletion issue because, um, well, you know, at least at least as as I understand from uh, pollsters and sociologists, that carbon is invisible and viewed as a kind of benign carbon dioxide is viewed as a benign gas makes it less fearsome than, say, CFCs, which are, you know, very much chemical and not a part of, of the day-to-day -day environment. So that's one of the additional things that we're up against. Plus, you know, the organized opposition of climate deniers is so much deeper 
better funded, more entrenched than were the CFC manufacturers. So that's that's another thing we're up against. But that said, I think every city ought to try to pursue this agenda as far and as deep as possible, share its successes with other communities. And, you know, this is the way I think national change will finally take place. If you're a group such as such as a transition group who are actively working to uh, build resilience, uh, localize the economy, what would you argue would be the most uh, the best ways to measure the impact you're having? What indicators would you be looking out for? So, I mean, there, there's there's a bunch of ways of thinking about the problem. So, it, so let's start at the very at, at the very sort of top and most general level. So, in my view, there are three basic criteria for a successful localized economy. So one is to maximize the percentage of jobs in locally owned business. A second is to maximize local self-reliance. And a third is to maximize the, the deployment and spread and of, 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 of high labor and environmental standards. And I think there are tools that one can use on each of these criteria. So for um, the, the percentage of jobs in locally owned business, um, I mean, I don't know what the databases look like in the United Kingdom, but in the United States, um, really down to the zip code level, we can get a pretty good picture uh, of the number of jobs in different sizes of business in different sectors of the economy. <clears throat> so we have 1,100 sectors that, that we measure, um, so very high level of detail. And then we look at, you know, well, how many of those jobs are in self-employed businesses, how many in, say, one to five person, and all the way up to very big businesses. And so... Because, you know, we know that, that something like 99.9% of all businesses with fewer than 500 employees are locally owned, it's easy to make a good determination about local ownership. It's not going to be perfect, but it's pretty good. Um, and so what one can then see is year by year, you know, has the percentage of jobs in locally owned businesses expanded. The second, um, on the second criteria on self-reliance, this is where leakage analysis, I think, is, is very important. Um, so in the United States, um, for Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, um, I developed um, a set of calculators um, that uh, you basically plug in a county or a zip code and you can instantly see what your level of self-reliance is in um, every one of about, again, 1,100 sectors. Um, now, 
this um, this tool, um, I, so I, I worked for Bali a couple of years ago. Uh, when I left Bali, you know, they did not upkeep the tool. And so we're now trying to basically transfer the tool back to me, and then I will upgrade them and try to make it available again. Um, but, we, you know, one can clearly do these kinds of leakage calculations in a very expensive way using input-output um, uh, computer programs. And, again, in the United States, in order to use them and do a calculation for a community, probably is going to cost, you know, anything from one to $10,000. So the whole idea behind the Bali calculators is we'll give you a slightly less accurate estimates um, about how your sectors are performing in terms of self-reliance, but and it will cost you $20 instead of $1,000. So that still is, is an objective of mine. And I think, you know, and we can talk more specifically about the methodology of doing that. But, 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 but I think broadly speaking, it can be done, it should be done, and when you start looking at those numbers year by year, you start to see, okay, these are the sectors I'm becoming more self-reliant in, these are the sectors I'm losing self-reliance in, and you can start, you know, measuring what your progress is. Um, obviously, your, the goal here is to increase your level of self-reliance in as many sectors as possible, but particularly those sectors, I would argue, that are that are tied closest to basic human needs, like housing, energy, food, and health. Um, the last criterion about um, social responsibility, you know, there's, there's a bunch of tools that are out there to measure companies uh, triple bottom line performance among them, the B corporation measurement gears. I've seen an article recently that said that they counted something like 500 of these tools out there. Um, which means that it's very tricky. You know, it's a, it's a very tricky enterprise to know which tool to use and which is going to give you the best information for your community. So, so I have a very simple standard, um, which is how, what, how many of your businesses are using any tool whatsoever to get feedback on their triple bottom line performance. And I think just measuring that in a community and seeing if one can press that indicator higher will be a fairly good, give you a fairly good sense of, of whether you're making progress on this third criterion. Um, so as I said, that's kind of the highest level. I think underneath there, one can start to then look at specific sectors, energy, food, health again, um, and look at specific indicators of progress or, or, or lack of progress around localization. And, you know, the one thing that I would just say um, for, for folks in the transition movement is that the most serious mistake that people make on indicators is they raise a bundle of money to do a, you know, a, a terrific indicators report in year one. 
and they are never able to do it again, raise that amount of money again in years two, three, etc. So it's really important, I think, in the short run to use readily available data um, uh, you know, already compiled by the government uh, or, or other private entities that's you know, not expensive and, and develop indicators around that. And might an additional one to that be something around inward investment and the degree to which the community is mobilizing and able to in, uh, in bring investment into these projects? Yes. So that's, yes. And, and in fact, so um, the Bali, with the Bali calculators, um, we actually have three types of calculators. Um, so the first is the one that I described to you, which is just sort of overall leakage, but it's mostly about leakage of consumption dollars. Um, because U.S. databases, uh, for weird historic reasons, don't measure farming and some of the food sector in the rest of the economy, we have a second food calculator um, using those specific data. And then our third calculator is around capital. Um, now, again, speaking for the United States, we have very good data on local banking um, and, and also the, the performance of non-local banks in reinvesting in community. And this is because of a law that we passed in the 1960s called the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, Unfortunately, banking, you know, the, if you add together all forms of banking in the United States, it's about $8 trillion. But if you add together all forms of long-term investment that people have in stocks, bonds, pension funds, mutual funds, and insurance funds, that's $30 trillion. So it's, so it's more than three times larger uh, what the banking capital is. And we have no data whatsoever, national, regional, local, on how that money flows. But, but you know, just through, sort of through logical deduction, one can sort of see how almost none of that money has any local content whatsoever. That is, you know, when you put money in stocks and the stocks are all traded on, on a global stock exchange, all of that money is non-local. Um, so um, I would this you know I, this would be an area at least again for the United States that I would like to see uh, at least states if not the federal governments try to compile more data household by household so we can get a better handle on the movement of capital. What we're seeing and and you capture it beautifully in in in, the, in your most recent book is. The new models that are emerging around uh, local currencies, around local investment, new community energy company models, new food uh, models. What what kind of meaningful support would would make a big difference to these really being able to flower? Do you think at the moment they mostly have to get going under their own steam and raise money from wherever they can philanthropically and so on? What would meaningful support in terms of Finance, in terms of peer-to-peer, -peer, in terms of skills and so on, 
that, that would really mean that this could gain some traction, do you think? The theory that I think many of us have been working on in the United States is that if we can change the law uh, that currently makes it difficult and expensive uh, for the 99% of investors who are so-called unaccredited, that is, not wealthy, uh, if we if we if we make it easier for that 99% to put any money into local business, um, we will set in motion um, a whole bunch of changes in behavior and institutions that will begin to shift money away from bigger business to smaller business. Um, and and you know just so 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 folks have a sense of the scale of this, so um, again you know the the number of our long term investment is thirty trillion dollars. Um, I would estimate that um, something more than half, arguably much more than half, but so let's be conservative that more than half of our economy is in locally owned business. So that means uh, there is a fundamental misallocation of capital, that, that every single American is over-investing in Fortune 500 publicly traded companies and under-investing, that is, not investing at all, in local small business. Um, if we can fix the laws that that have led to this misallocation, I think, you know, something like fifteen trillion dollars will move not immediately but over time from Wall Street to Main Street, and that movement will have profound impacts in two ways. I mean, one way is because you're putting a lot of new capital into promising resilient businesses at, at the community level but the other way is is that you are pulling money out of all of these businesses that are doing lots of environmental harm in the world and and I what people have not appreciated is that um, the um, poor structure or, or at least the, let's call it the outdated structure of securities laws is responsible for the single biggest subsidy that goes into unsustainable businesses. And by um, reforming securities laws, um, we are beginning to dismantle that subsidy to large-scale global unsustainable business. Um, now, it, you know, it, changing the law is not enough for individual behavior. And so that's why, you know, in local dollars, local cents and other things that I've written, um, I try to point out a whole bunch of very specific tools that people can use to begin uh, to localize the money, their money. Uh, but, but, you know, the problem is really twofold right now. Um, one problem is is that it takes a lot of work and energy to be a successful local investor and people just don't have the time and the ability to do that so we haven't made it easy enough for people yet um, the second problem is is that you know in, in the big scheme of things um, 
creating a local investment revolution really requires four different um, kinds of changes. Um, so, so, you know, to just run through them briefly, uh, you know, first you have to make it easier and cheaper for the average person to put money into a local business. So that means you have to make it easier and cheaper for that business to issue stock or debt notes or other forms of security. The second thing you have to do is you have to make it easier and cheaper for people once they buy these securities to sell them again so that they have some value uh, and, and everyone needs to cash out at some point. The third thing we need to do is we need to make it easier and cheaper for people to put these securities in a pool so that they can, you know, create diversified portfolios of, of local business because otherwise, you know, you, the types of investments that people have are too risky. Um, and then the third thing we need to do is we need to make it um, possible and easy for the fiduciaries who run very large-scale investment institutions on behalf of big numbers of people, so I mean pension fund managers, people who run foundations, people who run university endowments, people who run big church chunks of money, you have to change the rules to make it possible for them to put money into these uh, local businesses. The, the thing about the way the law works in this area is that these things follow sequentially, which is to say, you can, as, as an institutional manager, you cannot justify putting money into a local fund, or that is a fund of local securities, unless it actually has a performance record of several years to show that it is doing pretty well, has a good rate of return. You cannot run a local fund unless you have the ability to buy and sell securities on a local exchange. And you cannot run a local exchange until you have a critical mass of local securities. So, so really, you know, in, in the United States, and my sense is that this is also true in the UK, we are really at step one. We're at stage one now of making it easier and cheaper for people to buy securities. And, and you know, we still have a lot of work to do on that, but we have to then sequentially go through these other steps and it's going to take a while to do that um, in terms of both legal and institution building. So I think this is, you know, we're talking about a process here that's going to be at least five or ten years uh, to fundamentally reshape the investment environment. Our theme this month is about impact, the impact that transition has had. From, from, where you've, from where you sit, what's your sense of the impact that... That, that transition has had as a as a movement as a as an approach. Well, I so so um, there's two ways that that I would look at that. So um, so one way is transition as an idea, and the other way is transition as an organization. Um, so I think transition as an idea 
has been tremendously effective. Um, but it comes, you know, in, in in the United States, it has many different names. Um, come, some of it comes from the Post Carbon Institute. Some of it just comes from the environmental community. Some of it comes from Bali and other local business organizations. But I think the idea, the idea that the global economy has become unreliable and that we need to, you know, rebuild our communities, our community economies from the ground up um, has taken hold everywhere. And so, you know, I don't travel to a lot of places around the world, but 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 maybe, you know, to 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 say a dozen countries um, and every single one of those countries that I have gone to. Uh, including, you know, developing countries like, like Brazil, um, there is evidence of this transition under, underway. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a study for the Gates Foundation called Community Food Enterprises, where we looked at 24 examples of great local food business. So half of them were outside the United States. And... Uh, just in every one of these countries that we looked at, there was a an interesting, profound localization movement taking place. Um, so the second part of the question is, you know, um, transition as an organization. To what extent are people using transition materials as opposed to other things on this? And I think, you know, my my sense is is that. Um, uh, transition is very strong in Canada and Australia and through much of Europe. Um, I don't see transition having quite as much visibility in most of the United States uh, yet, um, or having um, quite as much visibility in a place like Japan or in a lot of developing countries. But I think that, you know, that's changing. And, and you know, I, I appreciate that there's, all, there's only so many hours in the day and you guys are working as hard as you can to get the message out. When I last spoke to you, uh, whenever it was, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I asked you something like, um, what advice would you give for people involved in transition who would like to uh, be as effective as as possible in terms of their local economy and you, your advice was to go to business school right uh, and as, as somebody pointed out I think in the comments afterwards well if you went to business school nowadays chances are what you would be learning is the kind of neoliberal uh, growth based uh, economics um, if, you, if you were able to design the Michael Schumann uh, uh, business school uh, uh, one year diploma what would that what would that course cover? What do you think? What what, what do you think are the things that, that that people would need to learn from an enlightened business school? Well, it's not hypothetical in the sense that I've been working um, with some wonderful people at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia, to design and 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 you know test out different modules for this program, um, and. But but I think that um, 
you know, some of some of what needs to be taught is, um, you know, a, a sort of sustainable economics, micro and macro economics from a from a sustainability perspective. Uh, some of it is looking at, you know, uh, the topics of growing business, um, but from a perspective of either, you know, triple bottom line for profit business or uh, triple bottom line um, social enterprise, which is non, which is usually nonprofit, um, and uh, but 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 you know, like you could go through the checklist of of kind of what what needs to be you know what people. So you know, how do you do financial statements? How do you do cash flow? How do you think about raising of capital, how do you, you know, manage a workforce successfully, uh, how do you, um, uh, how do you do marketing? So all these things, all these things I think are, are important topics, but it's important to teach case studies of successful social enterprise or triple bottom line for profits, um, you know, particularly small scale triple bottom line for profits so that people can carry those lessons into their work. Um, I also think that, you know, economic development, which is, a, you know, a topic that's a little bit different than uh, how to run your own business, but, but rather how, you know, what what can a community or what can a government do as a way of nurturing business? I, I think there's that also can and should be taught in a fundamentally different way. And so uh, the, the, the new book that I am working on right now is called Reinventing Economic Development. And one of the messages that I try to convey is that um, even as we are undertaking programs uh, in transition towns uh, around our style of economic development, it's important to figure out models that pay for themselves. So, for example, um, you know, there, 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 one can conceive of lots of ways of doing a buy local program. One way of doing it is, you know, campaigns, signs on billboards and buses and you know, putting all kinds of messages out there in the general public. And unfortunately, that costs money. And, and that money usually has to be has to be fronted by government or, um, or, or, or foundation grants. What I would what I think is a better approach is you might undertake, say, a local loyalty card or a local debit card. And those cards, um, have a business structure underlying them. So you're really accomplishing the same thing, only you figured out a way to self-finance. And I think for many of the elements of economic development, so I would include in that promoting entrepreneurship, raising local capital, um, developing partnerships among local businesses so they're more competitive. These activities can be reframed in revenue-generating ways that allow them to be self-financing and grow, and also in a way to insulate themselves 
from you know change the, the, the inevitable changes of government. I mean, um, so so you know what we see in the United States is that economic development programs yo-yo uh, as various various governments come in and out, and it's just a very unstable environment for doing anything. So so getting a, a bunch of more, more modest, small-scale, self-financing programs supporting local business is a much better way of doing economic development. And and so that's part of what I'd want to teach as well. And, and lastly, um What's your sense of, of of what a tipping point looks like? You, know, you said at the beginning uh, that your sense is that as a as an argument, localization is winning. When you're in when you're in the middle of something, it's really hard to know whether things are moving, whether they're not moving. What's your sense of, of I mean, the thing with tipping points really is you can only see them in hindsight, I guess. So yeah, there's probably a bunch of them. The one that that I think that I think about the most um, goes back to this shift of money from global company, shift of investment capital from, from global companies to local companies. Um, because the level of misallocation of capital is so profound and frankly complete right now that um, I think that there will be that the once once people begin to figure out how to shift money into local business, I think I think that could proceed very very quickly. Um, and and one reason I think it'll proceed quickly is so again to go back to the United States, where you know as I've argued there there will probably be a $15 trillion shift over time from, from Wall Street to Main Street. When the first trillion dollars moves, hasn't, hasn't happened, won't happen for a while, but when the first trillion dollars moves, people are going to notice. And, and one of the ways that people are going to notice is that when there's less capital chasing global companies, uh, those companies' value is going to go. The, the value of those companies is going to go down. And as more capital chases local businesses, the value of those companies is going to go up. And as that happens, people will take notice. People who are sort of sitting in the fence and said, "Well, I don't still still don't see the evidence that local businesses are are that successful or profitable." Um, but, but when, when, when people start seeing those data, I think others will start to move their money. And, and so the next trillion moves and then another and another until, you know, all 15 moves. So I think that, that inflection point, uh, will be an extremely important moment and hard to know when it happens. Um, but, you know, capital moves very quickly, as countries like Argentina have, have realized to their, to their peril. Um, and I think capital exiting out of Wall Street could happen very quickly. And when you start to see articles about, you know, people are fleeing the mainstream markets 
Um, and, and, you know, of course, many of those articles will be put in terms of panic. Um, that's when you know that, that what, we have, what we are doing has really taken hold. 